So the beginning of your Bible would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 3, I think most of you know, on Sunday mornings we're preaching through the life of Moses. And of course it was Moses that wrote the first five books of our Bible. We get here to the book of Numbers. Moses wrote this book. It's called Numbers because it's all about numbers. It's numbers of tribes, numbers of people, numbers of wars, numbers of soldiers, numbers of casualties. I said this a few weeks ago that uh, many people commented what I read in Numbers seems to be the same thing that we read in Deuteronomy. Pastor, why is that? Numbers was a day-by-day diary of what was happening with Israel when they wandered, and it was written as they did it. When you get to Deuteronomy, it's the end of 40 years, and Moses looks back on those 40 years. So yes, they are, many of the things are the same. One is while it was happening, and Deuteronomy was after it had happened. Numbers chapter 3 is where we find ourselves. And I would like us to read three verses. We'll make sense of them in just a minute. But if we could read Numbers chapter 3, and if we could read verse 14 and 15, and then verse number 40. Again, Numbers 3, verse 14 and 15, and then verse number 40. Let's read that together, reading it out loud, beginning in verse 14. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying... Number the children of Levi after the house of their fathers by their families. Every male from month old and upward shalt thou number them. And then verse number 40. And the Lord said unto Moses, Number all the firstborn of the males of the children of Israel from a month old and upward and take the number of their names. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for each one that's here. Now, Lord, I know that some are away I know that some are home, not well, and minister to their hearts where they're at. But Lord, I thank you for the faithfulness of so many here. And Lord, I know that some had to uh, endure a little more cold than has been normal. And maybe the road's a little more slippery than we've been used to. But Lord, I pray that you bless each one for their faithfulness to the house of God. And Lord, we've come to the time now of opening your word, asking you to speak to our hearts. Help us. Maybe this thought that uh, you've given me this morning, or maybe it's just, maybe it's a brand new thought. Maybe no one's considered it before. Maybe someone else has thought of this before. But Lord, help us. Help us to make it practical, understandable. May we be the better for you because of it. And Lord, as always, would you please direct my words? Fill me with your spirit. Help me to say what you would say if you were standing here yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, uh, we are here in the book of Numbers. What is it that we're looking at today? Well, when we get to Numbers chapter 3, what we find is there's two more numberings that are taking place. Look there, if you would, in... uh, Trying to get my thoughts here together. Look there, if you would, in uh, verse number 14. Numbers chapter 3 and verse 14. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, Number the children of Levi, after the house of their fathers by their families, every male from a month old and upward, 
shalt thou number them. Now, so he says, Moses, I want you to number the Levites. You know that there were 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, God said to Moses, I want you to count all those in Levi's tribe. And so that's what's happening in verse 14 and 15. Now look there in verse number 40 again. And the Lord said unto Moses, Number all the firstborn of the males of the children of Israel from a month old and upward, and take the number of their names. As you know, all of this is talking about the nation of Israel. They were in bondage in Egypt for four generations. When they cried out that God would send them a deliverer, God sent Moses, and they were delivered from their bondage in Egypt. You know that it took ten plagues to convince uh, Pharaoh to let the Jews go. And the last of those ten plagues was the death of the firstborn. God said, Moses, you tell them that if they take the blood of a lamb and put it on their doorway, when the death angel passes over their home, if he sees the blood applied, then he will pass over that home. If there is no blood applied, then that death angel will stop in that home and he will take the life of the firstborn. So often through the rest of the Bible, we read about the feast of the Passover, and that's always looking back to this event in the book of Exodus. Now, here's what's happening in Numbers chapter 3. God is saying to Israel, because I spared all of the firstborn, all of the Egyptians' firstborn died because the blood had not been applied to their homes. But God said, you Jews who you still have your firstborn alive, it's only because you believed what I said and you trusted what I told you and you have your oldest son or your oldest daughter you still have them with you because I spared them. How many follow so far? What is that? So God says in Numbers chapter 3, because I spared your firstborn, they really belong to me. If I hadn't made a provision, they would have been dead and gone. So God is saying, I have a right to the ownership of all of your firstborn. And God could have. He could have said, if you're the firstborn in every household, you're now mine, and, and I can tell you what to do. That, that's the first part of verse chapter 3. But God says, instead of taking all of your firstborn, I'm going to take the tribe of Levi instead of taking all of your firstborn. So he said, you can keep your firstborn son, firstborn daughter, you can keep your firstborn and uh, you can plan for their lives. Instead of your firstborn, I'm going to take this tribe of Levi in their place. How many understand that so far? So that's what's happening in Numbers 3. But God says, let's make sure that it's a fair swap. So there in verse number 14 again, he's saying, let's make sure that, you know, it's one for one, equal for equal. Numbers chapter 3, verse 14. 
And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, The number of the children of Levi, after the house of their fathers, by their families, every male from a month old and upward, shalt thou number them. So in verse 14 and 15, God says, I want you to take account of those in the tribe of, of Levi. Uh, look at what the count was in chapter 3 and verse 39. And all that were numbered of the Levites, well, that started back in verse 15, which Moses and Aaron numbered at the commandment of the Lord throughout their families and all the males from a month old and upward were 22,000. So remember, keep this in mind, instead of the firstborn of every Jewish household, God said, I'm going to take the Levite tribe. Well, he had Moses do a census, do a tally, and there were 22,000. Well, let's see how many firstborn were spared. Uh, that's why we read in verse 40. Look there in Numbers 3, verse 40. And the Lord said unto Moses, Number all the firstborn of the males of the children of Israel from a month old and upward, and take the number of their names. Let's say, Preacher, how did that count end up? Well, that count, when they made that count, I'm trying to find my verse. Uh, sorry? 43, let's try that, thank you. Verse 43. And all the firstborn males by the number of names from a month old and upward, of those that were numbered of them were 22,203 score and 13. So we would say 22,000, uh, 22,003 uh, score and 73, 22,073. It was short by 273. So, of the firstborn 22,273, if they were going to be replaced by the Levites, there was only 22,000 Levites. The count was short. You know what some people would say? Well, it's close. God, you don't, you don't get it much closer than that. So, God, let's just call it even Stephen. God doesn't work like that. God says, no, if I spare 22,273, I expect in place of that to get 22,273. You know, there's a lot of people that say, well, that's being too persnickety. That, uh, uh, that's being too meticulous. Not to God. To God, almost, is not enough. And really what you find as you read there from verse 44 all the way to the end of verse number 49, God says, Israel, this is what you're going to have to do to make up for the shortage of 273. Again, have a look at it, verse number 44. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle, and the Levites shall be mine, I am the Lord. And for those that are to be redeemed of the 203 score and 13 of the firstborn of the children of Israel, which are more than the Levites, thou shalt even take five shekels apiece by the pole after the shekel of the sanctuary. Thou shalt take them, the shekel is 20 giras, and thou shalt give the money wherewith the odd number of them is to be redeemed unto Aaron and to his sons. Now, if you get a hold of this, all the rest of this message will make sense. If you don't get a hold of this, you'll think I've got some dastardly plan. 
God says, I have salvaged 22,273 firstborn of Israel. Instead of me claiming those, I'm going to take the tribe of Levi. Instead of claiming 22,273 of the firstborn, God says, all you have is 22,000 Levites. So he said, for the shortage of 273, this is how you're going to make up for that shortage. And he said, take that number, multiply by five shekels. That amount has to be given by Israel to the, to the tabernacle, to the priesthood. I'm, I'm trying to say that so many times believers convince themselves that I know what God says and what I am doing is almost what God says. So God should be happy with what I'm doing. God wasn't happy with 22,273 being replaced with 22,000. So if you're taking notes this morning, I know, do, uh, I know some of you do, my, my title this morning is when almost is not enough to God. When almost is not enough to God. I think that many of you know I went off to a Bible college in North Carolina my pastor's name was Carl Lackey. Uh, he made a number of statements that I've not forgotten, but one of them is, if in doubt, always err on the safe side. How I many have heard something like that before? Uh, the second statement he made is, if in doubt, always err on God's side. How I many have heard something like that before? Uh, the third one was, if somebody is going to be shorted, in other words, if you're going to cut a little bit off of somebody, uh, never let God be the one that is shorted. So again, if in your Christian life, if you say, yeah, yeah, pastor, I know that this is what God asks, and I'm almost doing what God asks, isn't God satisfied with that? And I'm saying to you by the name of my title, when almost is not enough to God, you don't want to cut God short. And so we're going to look at some occasions where that would be very important. You can let go of numbers. Uh, look there in the book of Acts chapter number 26. Acts chapter number 26, that'd be the New Testament. Again, we're looking at when almost is not enough to God. Now, you say, well, preacher, did Israel really pay for the shortage of 273? They sure did. They, they wanted the touch of God on their lives. They wanted God's blessing on their lives. And folks, we do too. You don't want, and I don't want, a little bit of carelessness to be the reason why God's full blessing isn't on our life. So let's look at some occasions when almost is not enough to God. Look there in Acts chapter 26, and follow as I read verse 28. The Bible says, then Agrippa, that was a king, then Agrippa said unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. That's pretty familiar. If you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard that before. We know the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this a judgment. We know that's true. All of us one day are going to die. Now, we're not hoping it's today, but uh, all of us one day are going to die. And the Bible says uh, in Hebrews 9:27, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. 
So we who believe the Bible, we know that one day we'll breathe our last breath, and after that we will stand before God at a judgment. Because all of us are sinners. When we stand before God as sinners, if we have uh, trusted Jesus' payment for our sin, we're safe. Our sins have been paid for. But if we have not trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, our sins have not been paid for. That's why God cast some people into a place called hell. Because they didn't accept Jesus' payment, they therefore, for the rest of eternity, have to make their own payments, and they'll never complete making the payment for their sins. Pastor, what's going on here in Acts chapter number 26? Well, here in Acts 26, uh, the Apostle Paul has been arrested, and Paul uh, stands before one governor. His name was Felix, and then he is uh, shuffled off to another governor. His name is Festus. And then here in Acts chapter 26, he is taken before King Agrippa. And Paul is given license to talk to King Agrippa. I want you to see what it is that Paul told Agrippa. Now, Agrippa was a king. In Agrippa's uh, power was the ability to set Paul free or to condemn Paul. Paul wasn't worried about whether he was free or not free. Paul took this opportunity to tell King Agrippa that Jesus Christ had paid for his sins and that he needed to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. Look there in Acts chapter 26 and verse 23. This is right in the middle of Paul delivering that truth. Acts 26 and verse 23, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And so he is giving King Agrippa the gospel. And uh, when he finally decides to tie it all together and put it on King Agrippa, do you believe this? Do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you believe that because of your sin there's a punishment? Do you believe that Jesus, when he died, he paid for all of your sins? King Agrippa, do you believe this? He's, he's putting it on him. Look there in verse number 28. Sorry, verse 27. Paul says, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. What an opportunity that was. That was the moment where King Agrippa could have said, yes, I do believe all these things. And yes, I will receive Christ as my Savior. But look at Agrippa's answer, verse number 28. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now, if you are almost saved, then you're not saved. How many times do we talk to people and it seems fewer people have the time to listen, but how many times do we talk to people about the fact that all people are sinners and because of sin there is a judgment coming, that God loved us so much he sent his son Jesus Christ to pay for our sins. And if we will but trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. And how many times do we talk to people and say, do you know for sure that you're a child of God? Do you know for sure that you're on your way to heaven? 
Do you know for sure? And the answers that we get, I hope so. Then you're not saved. I'm trying. Then you're not saved. In this context, almost, I'm almost a Christian. Folks, you are either a Christian or you're not a Christian. There's no gray area in that. You have either trusted Christ as your Savior or you have not trusted Christ as your Savior. See, well, I've been given a lot of thought to that decision. You're still not saved. Well, I've heard that gospel all my life. You're still not saved. Look at Paul's response to Agrippa's answer about almost. Verse number 29. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, not only you, King Agrippa, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. Now, remember, Paul is, Paul is chained. So we're not told in front of him, but Paul's in chains. And Paul says to this king after he's given him the whole gospel, do you believe this? He said, you know, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. You know what Paul's answer was in verse 29? I wish that not only you, but everyone hearing my voice today was not just almost, but was altogether such as I, except these bonds. You know what? Paul knew that when he died, he was going to heaven. Paul knew that he had trusted Christ as his Savior. And Paul said, I wish you all knew that. I wish you had all made that decision. I wish you were all just like me, except for these bonds, except for these chains. And I say, if you're taking notes this morning, again, we're looking at when almost is not enough to God. And I say to you, first of all, almost is not enough in the matter of trusting Calvary. Again, almost is not enough in the matter of trusting Calvary. Have you trusted Christ in what he did at Calvary for your sins? Now, I know a Sunday morning crowd, I, I, I know that most are saved, but maybe not all. Maybe when someone asks you, when did you trust Christ as your Savior, all, things, all of a sudden things get very foggy. And all of a sudden your answer gets very vague. You say, well, preacher, I think you need to do more than just think. Preacher, I want to. You need something more than wanting to. And here, this king had an opportunity. And he said, you've almost convinced me. Almost is not enough in the matter of trusting Calvary. Folks, you're either saved right now or you're not saved. There's no middle ground. You're either saved and you're a breath away from being in heaven. Or you are unsaved right now and you are a breath away from being in hell. And there's no time to waste. There's no time to put it off. Well, preacher, I, I can see the need to get saved. But I'm waiting for a more convenient time. May I say to you that, uh, it, and I've said this before, but it takes four things to get saved. No one gets saved without these four things. First of all, it takes a presentation of the scriptures. And uh, that's the soul winner's part. When we go out there and hand out tracts and knock on doors and hold up scripture signs, what we are trying to do is present the scriptures to lost people. You can't get saved unless somewhere at some time someone has presented the gospel to you. 
So to get saved, it takes a presentation of the gospel. That's the soul winner's part. Uh, then it takes, secondly, a proper look at the sun. Well, we're not talking about the sun in the sky, but the son of God. He is more than just a higher power. He is more than just the man upstairs. You have to recognize that Jesus is the son of God. Well, that is a sinner's part. You have to see that. To get saved, it takes a presentation of the scriptures. It takes a proper look at the son uh, the third thing, it takes a powerful work of the Spirit. You can't get saved without the working of the Spirit in your heart. Jesus said to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit to birth you into the family of God. And he wants to do it. It's not like the Spirit of God, no, we've not, no, he wants to, but it takes the fourth thing. The fourth thing, it takes a personal reception by the sinner. Let me put these together now. It takes a presentation of the scripture. So folks, even when we go out on a regular basis and talk to people about getting saved and hand out tracts about getting saved and hold up scripture signs that helps people to consider the thought, Pastor, we don't, we don't see anything happen from that. Listen, you have to let the results be in God's hands. It could be that your and my efforts, much of them are simply presenting the scriptures to somebody that doesn't, has never heard it before. How many times do we knock on a door and did you know for sure if you die, go to heaven? Some honest people say, no, I don't know that. Could I show you? Folks, if they say yes. There's no guarantee that they're going to get saved, but now they're giving opportunity to hear it. But you know, after a presentation of the scriptures, after a proper look at the sun, after a powerful work of the spirit, it takes a personal reception. That's why the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. King Agrippa, he said, almost. He figured I can put it off till tomorrow. He figured, I can put it off till next week, next month. I've got lots of time. Nobody has a guarantee of tomorrow. But you can't guarantee that the Spirit of God will be convicting your heart about the need to get saved tomorrow, like he might be doing today. And that's why when Paul said, Believest thou the prophets? I know you believe. And King Agrippa said, Almost. That's all we ever hear about that king. And as far as we know, he is in hell today. And I wonder if we could put our ear to hell. I wonder if we wouldn't hear multitudes screaming, saying, I had a chance to get saved, but I put it off. I was almost saved. Folks, if you're almost saved, you're still completely lost. We're looking at this business of almost. And I say, first of all, almost is not enough in the matter of trusting Christ. How many testimonies have we heard of people who did get saved in the later years of their life? And thank God for it. Remember reading about this man who lived a wicked life for over 50 years. And he attended an old-fashioned camp meeting. And there he heard the gospel again and that day, he bent his knee and humbled his heart and trusted Christ as a Savior. Do you know, after several weeks and months, folks asked his wife, and they asked his children, 
Have you noticed a change? And a big beam comes across their face. Oh, yes. And they asked him. They said, any regrets? And he said, yeah, I have one regret. One regret. I wish I had gotten saved a long time earlier. You say, preacher, what would be the difference? You, instead of having wasted years, could have had invested. I say, first of all, when almost is not enough to God, almost is not enough to God in the matter of trusting Calvary. If you've not done that, you need to, you need to today. i give you a second thing. Look over there in the book of Ezekiel. So the middle of your Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, keep going. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. That's Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter number 33. Not only is almost not enough in the matter of trusting Calvary, and again, if, you've not, if you're not saved and don't know it for sure, for sure, get it settled. Have the satisfaction in your heart that you know, that you know that you're on your way to heaven. Ezekiel chapter 33, look there in verse 2. If when, sorry, verse 2, Son of man, speak unto the children of thy people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land of the people of the land, take a man of their coast and set him for their watchmen. Say, Pastor, what, what are we talking about here? You know, the nation of Israel, through much of their history, they lived in cities. Sometimes their cities were walled. Sometimes their cities were unwalled. And uh, whether they had walls or no walls, they often appointed somebody, just like Ezekiel 33 says, they would appoint someone to be the watchman of the city. So often during the night, that watchman would stay awake while the rest were asleep, and he'd watch. He'd just look over the horizon the best that he could, and what he was looking for was the enemy. And he was told there in verse number 2, it said, set someone to be a watchman. Look at verse number 3, if when he, that's the watchman, seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people. Then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. What's that saying? It, it, it's saying that that watchman is responsible. And when he sees that trouble is coming, it's his responsibility then to turn around to those in that city that he is to protect. And he's to announce to them, trouble is coming. If they listen to it, wonderful news. If they don't listen to it because the watchman has done what he was told to do, their blood is on themselves. If he hasn't told them of the trouble, then as Ezekiel 33 says, their blood is upon him. You know, you and I aren't standing outside the walls of a city. You and I aren't standing outside the limits of a city. But you know, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, then in a spiritual sense, you have been appointed to be a watchman. And as a watchman, you and I have the responsibility to tell others that trouble is coming. And if we do our part but they don't heed the warning, it's on them. Folks, if we don't do our part, 
and therefore they don't know trouble's coming. Their blood is upon us. Could I say, secondly, if you're taking notes, almost is not enough in the matter of telling God's message. Pastor, what is this warning that we're to give? Well, we're supposed to warn the lost. And again, I know that many here are involved in that. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Very next verse, How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And so now that we're saved, we're to be part of that army of watchmen trying to tell lost people they need to get saved. Will they all get saved? No. But if we've told them their blood is no longer on our hands. I'm saying to you, we are to warn the lost. Uh, at Revelation 22, 17, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, if you're saved, you're part of the Bride of Christ. So as part of the Bride of Christ, what we're trying to do is tell lost people, Listen, you need to come. You need to come to Christ. Pastor, you said that we are watchmen. What is it that we're telling? We're warning the lost. And then we're waking up the saints. Many a saint has got so consumed with the things of the world and so we are trying to wake them up. Do you know David said, I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. I have not refrained my lips, O Lord. Thou knowest David wasn't a pastor. David was a layman, if you would. Yet he recognized that he was to be a watchman. I'm saying, secondly, when almost is not enough to God, almost is not enough in the matter of telling God's message. Do you know, either you're going to be able to hold up your head and say, I told it. They didn't receive it, but I told it. Or you're going to say, I almost told it. You know, somebody is going to have to tell this generation that uh, God said there's only one way to heaven. Somebody has to tell them that. A lot of voices are saying there are many ways to heaven. We need to tell them there's one way to heaven. We need to tell them that there's one God. We need to tell them there's one Bible. We need to tell them you only need to get saved one time. There's one place to be on Sunday in the house of God. There's only one kind of songs for a Christian to listen to. That's Christian songs. Uh, there's only one avenue to talk to God in prayer. And there's only one hope of a backslider, and that's getting right. That's our job to tell them. May I say to you, uh, all of our children, as they grow up, they have choices. And if we have told them what God's choice would be, say, well, Pastor, they didn't want to do that. Did you at least tell them? Did you at least try? I, I, we're giving when almost is not enough to God. First thing, almost is not enough to God in the matter of trusting Calvary. Secondly, almost is not enough to God in the matter of telling God's message. I give you a third thing. Look there in Proverbs 4. Proverbs chapter number 4. And of course, uh, right at the end, uh, you're going to be challenged to ask God to point out in your heart, where am I almost doing what God wants? Paul said, I wish that you were not only almost, but altogether. Every bit of it. Look there in Proverbs 4. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 14. The Bible says, enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. 
Do you know, these verses are telling us that we're to give no place for sin in our life. And we're supposed to say miles away from sin. And yet, how many a Christian? And I speak not only to you, but to me. How many a Christian has a little secret area of their life that they don't think anybody knows? That they are fostering some kind of sin there. And here, as these verses are written, it said, don't go that way and avoid it and pass not by it and turn away. Do you know, as you read in the Old Testament, from time to time, there's statements that come up. And those statements are high places and groves. And so you read it throughout the Old Testament. And those high places and groves many times were outside the city limits High places were mountains and hills and groves or little treed areas. And what would happen is many times some of the Jews in the city, they lived what looked like a consistent life of a believer. But they would secretly make their way out to these high places. And in those high places there were treed areas, groves, and inside there, there were altars to false gods. And as you read the Old Testament, it talks about kings that came to the throne. But they didn't remove the high places. They didn't cut down the groves. The greatest of kings, when they came to the throne, they not only made sure that the house of God was in order, but they also went outside their cities to find the places, the high places, to find the groves, to find the false altars. And I'm saying to you, you say, preacher, I'm living a Christian life. Is all of that sin gone? Has it all been taken care of? Look again, Proverbs 4 and verse number 14. Proverbs 4 and verse 14, Enter not in the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men, avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. Again, I say to you, King Asa, when he came to the throne, 1 Kings 15, talked about all the great things that he did. Yet it tells us there in verse 14, but the high places were not removed. There was still a secret place where some of Israel could sneak to and be entertained by their sin. Do you know when we read about King Jehoshaphat, 1 Kings 22, it talks about all the great things that he did. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. It talks about Jehoash, 2 Kings 12, and all the great things that he did, but it says, but the high places were not taken away talks about King Amaziah, 2 Kings 14, and all the great things that he did, howbeit the high places were not taken away. I'm saying to you, so if, there is, if there is some hidden sin that you or I still participate in that we're convinced nobody knows, God knows. You say, well, preacher, why is that so bad? All of us have spiritual high times. And folks, all of us have spiritual low times. And if there is some secret sins that have still been 
permitted a place in your life, when you get to a spiritual low place, the devil is going to draw you to that thing. You got to get rid of it. You say, preacher, I, I gave up drinking. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Well, I'm glad you gave it up. Did you get rid of it? Did you open those cans and pour them out, open those bottles and pour them out? No, but I stop. If you still have them in your possession, you are a step away from falling into those things. Pastor, I have given up smoking. And did you get rid of those uh, smokes? Pastor, I've given up worldly clothing, but are they still tucked in that bottom drawer? Preacher, I have given up the filthy magazines. Are they gone from your house? Preacher, I have given up shacking up. Did you give the key back? Have you changed the locks? Have you cut off the ability to go back to those things? Pastor, I have quit gambling. I've stopped rock music. I have, I'm saying to you, it's a wonderful thing to stop that which is wrong. But if you haven't gotten those things out of your life, almost is not good enough to go. I see the third thing, almost is not enough in the matter of terminating sin. It's either quit the sin and it's out, or you're going to eventually slide right back in. I, I, evangelist many years ago, he said to me, he said, Brother Carlson, I'm not preaching to you, but I'm preaching to me. I said, okay, I, I, I don't mind it when I can hear somebody preach to themselves. What? He said, you know, I have a terrible weakness. I'm not preaching to you. I'm telling you his testimony. He said, I have a terrible weakness with John Wayne Western movies. I said, okay. And he said, I was convicted because I was missing my Bible reading so I could watch John Wayne. Now, I was cutting short my prayer time so I could watch John Wayne. And he said, when I got convicted that much, I took that TV, that monitor, I unplugged it, and I took it down to my basement in one of those bedroom closets, and I put it away, and I covered it up. I said, okay, keep preaching. He said... That's probably the worst thing I could have done. Because it, is, it was a matter of time till I got offended by a Christian, till I got disappointed in what God didn't do. And he said, I went down there, and I pulled that thing back out, plugged it in. I said, brother, what are you trying to tell me? He said, when God convicts you about a sin, you not only need to quit it, but you need to get that thing out of your heart, out of your home, it has to go. You say, well, preacher, I, I've stopped doing it. That's almost getting victory over sin. I give you four things quick. There in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter number 3. We're, we're just trying to look at some places where Christians almost obey God. Or where lost people almost get saved. Malachi chapter 3. And I know as soon as I announce that text, I'm getting very nervous. There in Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 8. Malachi 3 and verse 8. 
Will a man rob God? Uh, that's a silly thing. How could you take a gun and hold up God and say, give me all you got? You say, Pastor, you, you can't rob God. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet ye have robbed me? But you see, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Look at verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there be, be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord, that if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Uh, if you've been saved for any length of time, you've heard about that word called tithing. You know, the local church is so important to God. This place is more important than the bowling alley. This place is more important than the investment business in town. This place is more important than Canadian Tire. This place called the church is the most important place in the spiritual plan of God. Now, let me convince you that. Do you know, it's the local church that sends the gospel out in the streets of their city. Canadian Tire is not doing that. Bank of Montreal is not doing that. Uh, the bowling alley, they're not doing that. It, it's the local church that sends its people out with the gospel. It's the local church that tries to lead lost people to Christ. It's the local church that sends missionaries out around the world. It's the local church that when someone gets saved, they are assigned to disciple and train those new Christians. It's the local church that helped those new Christians to grow. It's the local church that uh, indeed sends people. It, it, everything that God is doing today is through the local church. Uh, if, if you read uh, the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, that's half the New Testament. Every letter that Paul sent that he signed was either addressed to a local church or it was addressed to the leader of a local church. So you cut out attending a local church in your Christian life and you've cut out a lot of the instruction that God gave. Having said that the local church is so important in the economy of God, God was wise to establish how to finance a local church. And it's by the tithes of God's people. So if you say, preacher, what's a tithe? It's a tenth. God planned that when I come to this church, one-tenth of everything I earn, I put in this local church. God planned that if you tithe, give one-tenth of all your income into the local church that you attend, Every local church can do all that God requires it to do. But people have to tithe. Now, you know, my parents taught me this when I was just a little kid. When I was making 10 cents a week, I was taught one penny of those 10 pennies goes in the offering. What's a penny now? When we were in the States, somebody, I forget who it was, Somebody said, can I give you some pennies? Because they know we don't operate with pennies anymore. But when I was a little kid, I had no problem giving one penny of ten. I had no problem when I started working and had lawn mowing jobs when I earned ten dollars. I had no problem putting one dollar in. You know, when I started earning two hundred dollars a week, 
I had no problem putting $20 into my I'm just saying God set it up that if everyone who attends a local church, a ties to their local church, God can accomplish in that local church everything he's planned. Do you know where it gets tricky? It gets tricky when I was earning 25 cents a week. The tithe of 25 cents is, help me, two and a half cents. Why do you give two and a half cents? Remember, we're talking about almost. Well, some people say just two, two cents. Just put two cents. That's close enough. Almost is not okay to God. And see what my parents taught me? Son, you can't give two and a half cents. You always round up when you're dealing with God. Well, pastor, three cents. You are robbing yourself. Yeah, but I'd rather rob myself than I would rob God. I'm saying the fourth thing here real quickly is almost is not enough in the matter of tithing to God's house. And I know most people here tithe. God bless you for it. You know, very rarely do I ever talk about finances. This is not every week that we talk about this. Do you tithe to God's house? You say, preacher, I can't afford to get by with what I have now. I'm never going to make it with giving away 10% to my local church. God will make sure to stretch the 90% farther because it'll have his blessing on it than by you keeping 100%. Now, I know that there's some Christians never got that figured out. And so what are they doing? They're getting jobs on the side and they're figuring I could do this and that. And the other. If you would just be obedient to God, God will take care of all the rest. I, listen, folks, I'm 62. I have seen God bless in 62 years in things that I never could have afforded to do if I kept all 100%. Why don't you just trust God? Maybe you say, well, preacher, I put $5 in every week. If that's your tithe, God bless you for it. But if it's not, you're trying to convince yourself that almost is okay with God. i give you the last thing. I'm done with this. We got through that one. You made it. You survived it. Uh, let me give a last thing here, if you would. Look in uh, Philippians chapter number 1. Philippians chapter number 1. Again, we're looking at areas in our life where sometimes Christians say, well, I'm almost doing that. And I'm saying from the text in Numbers 3, almost wasn't enough to God. Again, the very last thing, Philippians 1, very common verse, verse 21. The Bible says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you know, I think that's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. You know, the one that wrote that was the Apostle Paul. Paul, of course, wrote half of our New Testament. We know that before Paul got saved, he, he was climbing over everybody he could to reach his goals. But after Paul got saved, he decided, you know what? Now, all of me belongs to God. He's got me all. Look there again, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ. Uh, my living, every day, every hour, every minute of my life, it's all for Christ. And to die is gain. I don't suppose Paul thought too much of some Christians who just gave the leftovers. 
I'm sure Paul wasn't too impressed with Christians. You know, they, they read their Bible if they had time. I'm sure Paul wasn't horribly impressed with Christians who prayed, but only when they had time. I'm sure Paul wasn't impressed with Christians that made it out to church occasionally. I'm sure he wasn't impressed with Christians who, I'm saying to you, Paul said, to me, to live, it's all Christ. Folks, when you consider Jesus Christ gave his all for you, how could we give any less? The very last thing I say to you almost is not enough in the matter of turning it all over to God. Again, almost is not enough in the matter of turning it all over to God. Do you know some years ago, it was Christmas Eve in Korea. There was an expectant mother who was walking through the snow to a missionary's home. She knew that missionary could give her help. A short way down that road that she was walking to that mission house, there was a deep gully and a bridge across it. And as this pregnant woman stumbled forward, the birth pains overcame her. And she realized that she wouldn't be able to get to that missionary home. So this expectant mother crawled under that bridge, and there alone between uh, the, the uprights of that bridge, she gave birth to a baby boy all by herself. And as she gave birth to that baby boy, she had nothing with her to wrap the baby with, and so she began one by one to remove her, her own clothing, to wrap around that little baby, and that little baby looked like a little cocoon until the woman had taken all of her clothes off to wrap that newborn child. And then nearby, she, that woman found a piece of burlap, and she pulled that over herself. And that's how the night ended. That next day, the very missionary that she was going to got in her Jeep, was going to take a Christmas package to a Korean family in town. And so the missionary in her Jeep took that. And when the missionary was driving back home, came to the bridge, the, the Jeep sputtered and stopped. And the missionary got out, lifted the hood, and thought, what am I going to do? And as she looked under the hood, this missionary could hear a baby crying. And so, sure enough, she made her way underneath that bridge. And she found a baby that was crying that was wrapped in all of these clothes. So the baby was still alive, but found the mother had frozen to death. And so the uh, missionary takes this little boy and raises this little boy like her own. And every once in a while, that little boy, as he's growing older, gets to be five and seven and ten and... He'd say, tell me again how it was that you first saw me and how you rescued me. And, and that missionary, with, with, with tears in her eyes but a smile on her face, said, your mother loved you so much that she gave her life to save you. That boy, he got to 12 years of age. He said to this Korean missionary, or missionary to Korea, he said, tell me again. And she told him again, and he said, would you please take me to the graveside of my mother? And sure enough, that missionary took this 12-year-old boy to the graveside, and the missionary boy, polite as ever, said, could you please stand off at a distance? And the missionary thought, well, just needs a little bit of room, give respect to his mom, 
And that missionary from a distance watched as this now 12-year-old boy began to peel off one layer of clothing and set it on that gravesite and took the next layer and set it on the gravesite. And the missionary was saying, oh my, <laughs> I sure hope he's not going to take it all off. And sure enough, that child took all of its clothes off and laid it on that gravesite. And by this time, the missionary thought, I better get in there and rescue this boy. And she quickly came back to try to redress him. And she heard that 12-year-old son said, Mama, you gave your life for me. Were you this cold? when you gave your life for me. Jesus gave his life for us. He just didn't give an hour of his life. He gave his life. He left heaven to come to this earth. And if in response to that, if somewhere in our life where God has told us something, we're doing almost Almost is not enough to go.